0: Well, before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. As we're getting started, you might want to open up your Bibles if you brought one to Isaiah chapter 49, because we're going to be referencing the Haftorah portion, which comes from Isaiah 49, and earlier text which we have been looking at. The Haftorah this week continues with the theme of comfort. Remember, as we're preparing for the coming of the High Holidays, and we're examining ourselves and taking notice um, before God of our own shortcomings, our failures, and our sins. It can be easy to be discouraged when you look at yourself and you realize oh i haven't changed in all the ways that i hoped i would have changed by now and that can produce uh, a, a kind of sorrow that keeps people away from god and the haftura portions are specifically selected during this season to remind us that we can be honest with God and that God will not leave us in a condition of despair, but he will bring us closer and closer to him. And thus, each of these Haftorah readings has a theme of comfort. And at the same time, they might address some of the challenges, the disappointments, the difficulties that we might have. Well, this week's Haftorah continues with the theme of comfort And as well, it connects to a theme that we've been speaking about for the last few weeks, the revival of the Jewish people and the revival of the nations of the world. So if you turn to Isaiah 49, verse 6, and by the way, who actually has a Bible with them? Who has has like a classic Bible with real paper? Oh, I'm so happy to see that. And the Digerati among us, who who brought their Bibles? Good, good, excellent. Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is a a word that has lasting impact. He has said, it's not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the offspring of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so My salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. It's not enough. Now, that doesn't mean that the first part is unimportant. The first part is critically uh, important and essential as well. It's just not the whole picture. So the prophet is speaking this word to the Jewish people. It's not enough just to look out for our revival and our restoration, that is the, the, the backbone, if you will, of the Messianic movement. You can read in Jeremiah 23 that God says that he is going to raise up shepherds who will take care of the Jewish people, not like the shepherds who did not take care of the, of the Jewish people, and that they will be gathered back into their flocks, into communities, into um, communities that are faithful, And the scripture goes on and it connects it to the Messiah. So there's a messianic theme that's connected to the revival of the Jewish people. And this is really the backbone of the messianic movement. God said he would restore our people and he's doing it. No one came up with a plan and no one's working the plan. Though we try to plan around what we understand. However, God started taking initiative. And we are watching him, and we're trying to follow him in the direction that he's going. And so his initiative is to restore the Jewish people. Whenever the Jewish people have fallen, whenever the Jewish people um, are broken, whenever the Jewish people are in trouble, the Lord is looking out, how can he restore the Jewish people? But it's important to understand he doesn't stop there. That's a starting point for him and a foundational point, but it's not the end of his plan. It's the essential beginning. And so the prophet is saying it's not enough to do this. It's not enough. Now, so that you can understand, if you're married, you know this, it's not enough to be married. It's good to be married. I'm a happily married man. It's good to be married, but it's not enough to be married. You have to love your spouse as well, right? So it's too small a thing to be married. You should also love your spouse. But it's not enough to love your spouse. If you have kids, you should love them too, right? So each of these things is added to the other, and they become something that that is whole and complete. So God is speaking prophetically to the children of Israel and saying, I know how important it is for the revival of my people. I'm totally committed to it. And when I put this in your heart, I want you to understand, get it deep in your heart. Have it in your mind. Understand it. Embrace it. uh, uh, Arrange your priorities. Assign Uh, importance to this like I do, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. Now, this can be hard for some of us uh, who have experienced anti-Semitism at the hand of um, Gentiles. And we may have in our hearts a wound that makes us disinterested in the well-being of other nationalities. And I think the Lord is saying, get over it. Don't be stuck by that. Because the Lord says, I will also make you a light to the goyim, to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that my salvation, my Yeshua, my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. So God intends to restore the children of Israel but he doesn't intend to stop there. Now, it's also worth noting that his restoration of the Jewish people accompanied by his restoration of the nations doesn't mean the Jewish people disappear. It doesn't mean that we get blenderized into one uh, indistinguishable mess. Uh, God is not using, as I said a few weeks ago, a basimatic here where he throws everybody in, turns on the blender, and it's a bloody mess. But we're all sort of chopped up, and we blend together. Rather, the families of the world have value to the Lord, and he desires that we would be distinct and yet in good relationship to each other. And you can even read in the book of Revelation that when the... um, When the leaves of the tree are used for their great purposes, it's for the healing of the nations. And so we understand this. Even the coming of Yeshua doesn't complete that process. With the coming of Yeshua, there is now a time where we have to learn how to minister to the nations so that they can be healed. And and the nations will one day learn to not make war with one another or with us, for that matter. So God intends to restore the children of Israel. He doesn't want to stop there. He also wants to revive the nations of the world. And in verse 6, this prophetic word helps us see that there is a connection between Jewish revival and revival of the world. That's an important thing to understand. And it also helps us understand when we're reading in the New Testament Scriptures what's actually going on. It is an emergence of the fulfillment and realization, but not the completion of this process. Who brought the good news to the Italians? Answer, Jews. Who brought the good news to Turkey? Jews. Who who brought the good news to Greece? The Jews. Who brought the good news to Egypt? The Jews, and so forth. So you have to understand something. When, when Yeshua resurrects, ascends, returns to heaven, pours out his Holy Spirit, the Jewish apostles and the disciples of Yeshua continue in their Jewishness, but now they are extending the scope of their ministry in order to pay attention to what Isaiah is talking about. So they're going into Jerusalem... Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Right? And though Yeshua at one point said, I've only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, later on he said to the same people, now you go and make disciples of all nations. And so attending to the first is preparation for the second. But in paying attention to the discipling of the nations and being a light to the nations. We do not give up. We do not make secondary. We do not lower the priority of the revival of the Jewish people. We add to it. And we'll look in this week's Torah portion how important it is for these two to be functioning uh, and the mutual dependence they have. So this passage is not only about revival, but it's also about who's doing what. It's directed to those among the Jewish people who are stirred and called to be part of the spiritual revival of the Jewish people. And these same people are called to be part of the spiritual revival of other ethnic groups and nationalities. Our Messianic Synagogue is a reflection of this. We're an adumbration, if you like that word from last week. An advanced indication of what God wants to do on behalf of the Jewish people and the whole world. And when you see the full scope of our congregation, you look at the diverse ethnicity, but you also look at the, the strong number of Jews and Jewish families in our congregation then you, then you can see something that what God wants to do is not obliterate our distinctions, but unite us together in a way uh, that makes us whole. And in this way, it's like marriage, think of this. When a man and a woman are married, and they become what in Hebrew is called basarachad, one, one flesh, their distinctions are not erased. Am I correct? It's not that you take a man and you take a woman and you add them together and now you get one new man-woman. That doesn't happen. You still have a man, you still have a woman. Correct? In the same way with nationalities, you bring together Jews and people from other nations The one new humanity is not an obliteration of the Jewishness or the ethnicity of the other groups. It's very important for us to get that. Because when we hear the term one new man, we might think one new man is like this uh, melting pot man, but it's really one new mankind, one new humanity that is not at odds with each other despite our differences. This week's Haftorah includes a prophetic word that's meant to encourage Jewish people who can't see how the broken world that they're living in can be healed and how their own families could possibly be restored. This can be an issue that a lot of Jews who come to Yeshua can grasp because they may have had experience where their coming to Yeshua actually produced tension inside their Jewish family. And it may be difficult in the midst of that tension to imagine how can God get us through this. Well, he can. And God makes it clear in, in the Haftor portion that he himself will take initiative to bring his prophetic word into reality. And then he speaks about one of the ways that he's going to uh, accomplish what he sets out to do. And, and this is uh, from an, a very important passage in the reading this week, he will use, God will use Gentiles to revive Jews. Let me say it again. God will use Gentiles to revive Jews. Now, he'll also use Jews to revive Jews. That's important, very important, because there are some people who think the only way Jews will be saved uh, in Messiah as if they stop being Jewish and they are revived through Gentiles who help them be- get over their Jewishness. No, that's not correct. God uses Jews to revive Jews. He also uses Jews to revive Gentiles. That's Isaiah 49. And he will use Gentiles to revive Jews. So the prophetic word that we're going to read is actually from a, a passage that is being read all over, uh, all over the Jewish world in, in traditional synagogues everywhere this weekend. So it's not particularly uh, messianic. It's like a universal word for all the Jewish people. Now here's the word. It's in Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23. The Lord Almighty says this, I am beckoning to the nations, or I'm turning to the nations, and I'm raising my banner for the peoples. They will bring, these Gentiles, these Gentiles will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers, their princesses your wet nurses, or nursing mothers. It's a powerful statement. It's important to understand God has a plan to use Jews and Gentiles for mutually beneficial purposes. And to do this in such a way that it accomplishes his greater purpose for humanity. So this requires, I'm, this may sound simple when I tell it to you, And it it may seem so obvious to you, you're wondering why I'm taking time for this. And the reason is, as simple and obvious as it is, it's often ignored. It's often forgotten. But two groups are required. Let's be really simple. One group, Jews. The other group, Gentiles. Both are required. There is a mutual dependence. You know what that means? We need each other. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting next to a Jew or a Gentile right now. Turn to whomever is closest to you. Smile at that person and say, we need you. We need you. We need you. We need each other. Jews need Gentiles. Gentiles need Jews. Now, this is what's interesting. These words are going to be recounted in synagogues everywhere tomorrow. But it's uniquely in messianic synagogues where we take it to heart. And we say we need each other. There are some parts of the Jewish world that think that when a Jew marries a Gentile, that they have done something that's abominable, and that they are completing the work of Hitler. And yet, when you look at the historical facts, you understand that from the very beginning, God was bringing Gentiles and Jews together. Case in point, Abraham and Sarah. Was Sarah born a Jew? No. Abraham married a non-Jew. So according to Orthodox Jewish law, the children of Abraham are not Jewish. Problem. The problem is they are Jewish. So Isaac is a Jew, right? But he doesn't have a born Jewish mother. Okay, so let's go on. So Isaac marries a nice Orthodox girl. No. He too marries from outside the Jewish people because the Jewish people hasn't even fully emerged yet. You've got Jewish individuals, just the beginning of a Jewish family, correct? Okay, so they have children, and according to Orthodox Jewish rules, none of those children is a Jew. So there's a problem. The problem is that understanding about who's a Jew is an incorrect understanding. Because we can derive correct understanding by looking at facts. Sometimes you just need to be uh, empirical And inductive. And you look at the facts, you put them together, and you say, okay, so Abraham married a non-Jew that had a Jewish kid. Isaac married a non-Jew, had Jewish kids. Okay, then Jacob. Jacob also. Same thing, right? So the children of Israel were not born to Jewish mothers, So they're not really Jewish. No, of course they are. So what that tells you is that the family carries on Jewish calling and identity. And then let's look at Joseph, one of the children of of Israel. Who does he marry? He marries the daughter of Potiphar, an Egyptian, right? Um, An idol worshiper. But their children, Ephraim and Manasseh, are brought into the covenant that God has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are given the status of firstborn son, in a sense, taking the spiritual responsibilities that Reuben failed at, they take on. It's interesting. Fast forward, Moses Moses is learning his lesson from ancient history. He needs a good Jewish girl. Who does he marry? Zipporah. Zipporah is black. And Moses' siblings make a stink about it at one point. Do you remember, though, the Lord was upset with Moses because he did not give Britmalah to his son? The Lord was upset. So upset that Moses was on the verge of losing his life. That's how upset. Serious issue in God's eyes. And Moses just can't see fit to do Brit Malah for his own son. Who does Brit Malah? Zipporah. The black non-Jew? Wow. You know, we've got a mess in our hands. Or we have a reality. Now here's here's the way to understand it. These examples are adumbrations. They are advanced indications of where God's heading. You see, there are people who are not born Jewish, but are called by God and have a heart that responds to this call to build up the children of Israel. And God plans to use them. They're not called to pull the children of Israel away from God, but to God and such people we're we're talking about. So God has a plan that requires Jews and Gentiles and we need each other. Jews need Gentiles, Gentiles need Jews. It reminds me of an experience we had when we were growing up. My little sister, Rona at the time, I think she was about five years old, She was a sensitive little girl. She went to uh, visit a schoolmate for the first time. And uh, Rona just, I guess, didn't have an edit filter on at the time. And so she said to her friend, who she knew was not Jewish, she said, do you like Jews? And the girl said, I hate Jews. And poor Rona was in shock. This little five-year-old, you know, wanted to start crying and come home. But fortunately, she didn't leave because the other little girl finished her thoughts. She said, I hate Jews. I hate orange Jews. I hate tomato Jews. And I still remember that from... Uh, 60 years ago. You see, we actually need each other. And there is a spiritual battle against this direction that many times the opposition seems to be quite effective. But I dare say, uh, some of you have been in the middle of the battle, you may have war stories to tell. How many people who are part of a, the Messianic congregation, not born Jewish, but your family just cannot understand what you're doing? And, and, and those from Jewish families. How many of you have families that can't understand what you're doing? <laughs> okay, so, so here's the good news. Nobody understands what we're doing. <laughs> Maybe. What's important is that we understand what we're doing. And it's also important that we understand that we're called to build bridges, not to build walls that requires a good heart. So you may have been in the middle of it all, and you may not have realized what was going on all around you. So it's timely that we read about this right now. And let's go back to the passage and think about it. Isaiah 49 and 22 and 23. God will turn to the Gentiles. Now, in turning to the Gentiles, he's not turning away from the Jews. I want you to understand that. Because there are some, not according to their interpretation of this passage, but of other things that they read about in the Bible, where they have already figured out God is finished with the Jews. And they think that when Gentiles are added to the body of Messiah, it's because God is finished with the Jews. And Jews are pushed away, and Jews are unnecessary, and Jews are just meant to assimilate into whatever the dominant Gentile Christian culture is. But that is not what this passage says. This passage simply says that God will turn to the Gentiles. And he will use them to bring your sons and your daughters. And who are the yours? It's the Jewish people. To bring your sons and daughters, back to their God and back to their people. Now, the challenge that's expressed in Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23, it's an important challenge. It's that the people, the Gentiles who are called to give this care are called to be foster parents, nursing mothers, And they may not realize that they are foster parents. And they may try to hold on to the Jewish people and even control them, even make them into their own Gentile identity. But it's a hard calling, it really is, for the Gentiles to be foster parents. And any foster parent can tell you how hard this calling is. Anyone who has... uh, taken the responsibility to love someone else's child as if that child were their own, uh, and then has to deal with the fact that there are parents and may have to return the children to the parents or recognize the parents. Uh, Anyone who's been in that situation knows how hard it is to freely love given that condition. There's a lot of sacrifice, there's a lot of heartache, but there's great reward. These people, these people are kings and queens in God's eyes. I used to read this passage and I thought, I thought it the other way, the more simple way, that God will take kings, and he will take queens and princesses, and he will call them to serve the Jewish people. And he has done that. Uh, King Christian uh, in, in Denmark an example. King Boris in... Um... No. I, I, I can't think right now. He does call kings. And he does call... Queens, But I don't think that's the primary meaning of this. I think what this really means is that the people who function in this way are viewed as royalty in the family of God, in the house of God. That foster parents, both in a natural sense, but foster parents in a spiritual sense, have a dignity and have a special place of honor and majesty before the Lord So even though it's sacrificial, even though it's hard, God looks upon such people and says, "This is a king in my house. This is a queen in my house." And I have, I have worked with many people who have such hearts, and I can tell you it's an amazing thing really, to discover, to discover Gentiles who love the Jewish people, in many cases love the Jewish people more than Jews love. One another, But I've also worked with many Gentile Christian pastors in different cities throughout the world who started out well, but their hearts started strong, but went in the wrong direction. And somewhere along the way, they wanted not to be foster parents. They wanted to be the parents. They wanted to control the children as if they were their own. They wanted to control Jewish people in their congregations. They wanted to control Messianic congregations they had initially supported. And I'm really saddened to think about the trouble and the sorrow that they have caused by this. In fact, it's a great temptation. Those that are called into this ministry are tempted to think, oh, they're mine. And uh, just a word of warning, If, if you have such a call in your life, it will cost you. But the greatest cost is laying down that sense of ownership and continuing to have unlimited love that you're willing to show to other people. So as hard as it is, God's still committed to the idea of Jews and Gentiles being mutual blessings and being mutual servants. And that's what we're holding on to. And that's what guides us and that, that's what leads us and we embrace that. And there can be times when it's hard. I've known Gentiles in Messianic synagogues who say, well what about me? And that's a normal thing to say. And you can use that feeling in order to stir up empathy for every Jewish person who's sort of lost in a non-Jewish congregation. And for every Jewish person who's coming to Messiah, who's wondering, what do I do with my Jewishness and my faith in Yeshua? and how do I hold on to both? You can use that. So don't give in to self-pity. It will be hard. Don't give in to it. And, and don't give in to judgment. But also don't give in to the, the thing that will certainly cause great disappointment, and that is idealizing Jews as if Jewish people you know, are like, oh, they're God's chosen, and they're so perfect, and so good, and they're such blessing, and that usually means you haven't spent enough time around us, (laughs) because you're idealizing us instead of understanding we're people, we're all people. And uh, if you can put aside the idealization, then you can actually relate to each other without that. And it will protect you. Because when you put someone on a pedestal, there's only one place for them. And that's down. Because people fall off pedestals. So we need each other. We need each other. We need each other. Jews need Jews. Jews need Gentiles. Gentiles need Jews. Gentiles need Gentiles. We all need each other. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love each other. Help us to need each other. Help us to be vulnerable to each other. Help us to serve each other so that we could be willing, wise, and fruitful servants of the great call that you've given us. We pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And if you are standing by yourself, If you don't mind moving enough, so that you're not, that would be great. May the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep watch over you and protect you, may the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you, may the Lord be gracious to you, may the Lord lift up his face to you, and give you his shalom in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone.